Bienvenidos and welcome to La Raza Chronicles, Crónicas de la Raza, produced by Nina Serrano, Julieta Kuznir, and Vanessa Bohm. In tonight's program, Julieta Kuznir speaks with writer Daisy Hernandez about her new coming-of-age memoir chronicling what the Cuban-Colombian women in her family taught her about love, money, and race. Nina Serrano speaks with the director of the film called Roque Dalton, based on the life of the revolutionary Salvadoran poet that will also be screened at the upcoming Cinemas Festival. We'll also check in with La Peña Cultural Center about exciting upcoming events and the significance of September 11th in Chile's history. And of course, we feature the very best in Latino music. We'll be playing the music of Bolivian Spanish rapper Hector Guerra throughout the show. But first, we begin with Noticias Sin Fronteras with our very own Vilma V. Stay tuned. No se nos vayan. Buenas noches. This is Vilma V with Noticias Sin Fronteras, news headlines without borders from America Latina for the week ending September 7th. El Salvador, former president of El Salvador, Francisco Flores, wanted on corruption charges since an international arrest warrant was issued by a judge, turned himself in last week to the courts in San Salvador. Mr. Flores is accused of misappropriating foreign funds given to the country during Flores' time as president of El Salvador from 1999 to 2004. Mr. Flores stated, quote, I have given myself over to the court voluntarily and out of respect for the law, end quote. Mr. Flores had been missing since May of 2014. Mexico. Two contingents of the newly formed Gendarmería Nacional have arrived in Tijuana, Baja California. Last Thursday, September 4th, 100 officers joined the 300 officers who had arrived in the city on the 1st of this month. Baja California was one of the five states in which the new elite forces would be deployed. The others are Chiapas, Guanajuato, Jalisco, and Tamalipas. The force is a 5,000-officer division of the federal police approved by the Mexican Congress in 2013 and officially activated by Mexican President Enrique Peña Nieto on August 25th. According to El Sol de Tijuana, a daily paper published in Tijuana, there have been approximately 350 murders in that city since the beginning of this year. Nicaragua a suspected meteor struck Nicaragua last Saturday night, leaving a 12-meter-wide crater near the international airport in the capital of Managua. Nicaraguan officials and astronomers remain puzzled, however, since it appears that no one reported seeing the giant space rock streaking across the sky before the impact. One witness stated, quote, I was sitting on my porch and I saw nothing. Then all of a sudden I heard a large blast. We thought it was a bomb because we felt an expansive wave. End quote. Bolivia. Current president of Bolivia, Evo Morales, is seeking an unprecedented third term as the country's first indigenous leader. The presidential campaign is in full swing, with elections scheduled to be held on October 12th. The controversy over the development of a highway that would connect the country's Andean and Amazonian regions by slicing through an indigenous area known as Deepnis continues to be a big issue in this campaign. The conflict over the construction of the highway pits pro-road campesinos and cocaleros against low-land indigenous groups 
seeking to protect their ancestral lands from development. Both Morales and his vice president, Alvaro Garcia Linera, have publicly acknowledged mistakes made in organizing community support for the construction of the highway. A number of political parties, including the PVB, the Green Party of Bolivia, have made opposition to the highway a central platform in their election campaigns. Chile. A bomb exploded yesterday next to an underground train station in the Chilean capital of Santiago, wounding several people. The bomb went off around lunchtime near a fast food restaurant located in an affluent neighborhood known as Las Condes. Security cameras may have captured the suspects planting the device. Chief government spokesperson Alvaro Elizalde stated, quote, This is an act that has all the hallmarks of a terrorist deed, end quote. This week marks the 41st anniversary of the U.S.-backed military coup that removed President Salvador Allende from power back in 1973. This has been a summary of some of the latest news headlines from America Latina. I'm Vilma V for Noticias Sin Fronteras and La Raza Chronicles. If you have a news item or feedback that you would like to share, email us at larasachronicles at kpfa.org. to La Raza Chronicles, Cronicas de la Raza. I'm your host, Julieta Kuznir, and we are very lucky to have in studio here with us Daisy Hernandez. We're going to talk to her today about her book, A Cup of Water Under My Bed, a memoir. And I think pretty much everyone has an experience of time being of an immigrant or an outsider and negotiating different worlds and living within many worlds. And Daisy, it's so great to have you here because you really, in a beautiful way, paint a picture of the many way that we love and hate the way were different. So thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. So Daisy, the, <laughs> you really tell the story of your upbringing. Your, your dad is Cubano and your mom is de Colombia and you grew up in the East Coast, the New Jersey area. And you talk about how you kind of came to terms with the different traditions your parents have, as well as the ways that they saw the world that maybe were a little different from what your school education was showing you as just the typical American way. So why don't you tell us a little bit for listeners that haven't had a chance to read your book, which um, why don't you give our listeners a taste of what you kind of discovered or learned about your family through writing this? 
Yeah, sure. That's a really great question. You know, I started writing the book in a lot of ways because I had just not seen these sto- these particular stories in books or in magazines. And there's a point in the book where I describe about how I would go to Cosmo and Glamour magazine to learn about sex, but they didn't talk about poverty and race and immigration. And my mother was not talking about sex or love or anything like that. She's like, telenovelas are your romance, you know, and, you know, you marry someone because you need to stay in this country and there's, you know, you need to pay the rent and there's practical reasons, you know, and then maybe later you fall in love with him like happened for her, right? So there were sort of gaps between what I was learning through a largely English language world and what I was learning through a largely Spanish language world. My parents both came here from their respective countries, met in New Jersey, worked in factories, only spoke Spanish. I became the child translator as well. And I write about that, about sort of a lot of my childhood moving between both languages. And then, of course, language shapes our ideas and our dreams and our expectations. And so then moving sort of between those those two worlds. So you mentioned you kind of came to terms with the fact that you spoke always Spanish. There are a lot of things you knew only to say in Spanish, but there's a point in the book that I really enjoyed reading. I think a lot of us who grew up with immigrant parents, you know, maybe were born outside of the U.S., but grew up here. I oftentimes say, you know, yes, I'm concerned as 100% bilingual. I, you know, grew up speaking Spanish, but there are so many things that I sound like a child and I'm an infant in Spanish around because it's uh, it's not a language I've ever studied in or et cetera. And I think it's something that's hard for a lot of us to negotiate because we feel such strength and pride around how that has shaped us as human beings. But yet in many ways, there's a lot we're missing. Tell us about how you put the pieces together of your relationship growing up with the language. Yeah, absolutely. And what you just described is my experience and something I really wanted to write about because I took as an adult when I realized, wait a minute, this is my language. I want to know more than the words that are related to making dinner and Las Noticias and Walter Mercado and sort of the things that comprised our lives and and the chisme, right? The gossip about who's doing what in the neighborhood. Um, I took classes that were called Heritage Hispanic Speakers or something like that. And I realized, wow, I'm part of this huge community. It was such an important time for me to realize, wait a minute, there's all these other people in the classroom have been going through the same exact thing of Having this very strange vocabulary that, as I said, it sort of includes Walter Mercado and immigration law stuff, you know, things that are sort of necessary in our communications with our families and our larger communities and wanting to have a different relationship with language and wanting to own it in a different way. And I think part of that, too, for me, I, I know this is true for others that I've spoken with. There comes a point in which you feel like inadequate in both, you know, and, and constantly like you're trying to overcompensate in both as well. And for me, the process of writing this book was letting go of, I think, that shame that I had sort of been hoisted upon me by the world and that I had also taken on in some ways and sort of claiming, claiming my history with the language and and also claiming a different future with it, if that makes sense, right? I think that part of writing our futures is actually looking back and writing our histories. That's the voice of Daisy Hernandez. She's here talking to us about her memoir, A Cup of Water Under My Bed. So this is a really beautifully written book, even though you're talking about your sense of feeling inadequate, that doesn't come through at all. It's really poetically written, and I really enjoyed you know the many ways that you painted a picture of your of your life as a child and also your coming of age so why don't you give our listeners a taste of what your writing is like it'd be wonderful if you could read a passage you know maybe even alludes to the title of your memoir a cup of water under my bed i'll read from the essay uh, or the chapter rather uh, titled the candy dish and maybe i'll read a little bit and then share a little bit more about it my father keeps a candy dish in the shed on the floor. When my mother refuses to grant me any more sweets in the kitchen, I make my way to the shed, or el cuartico as we call it. 
It's a small room attached to the front of our house, and it holds the boiler that heats our home, my mother's two industrial-sized sewing machines, a shelf of plastic bags stuffed with fabric, and my father's machete and hammer. The candy dish is hidden behind the boiler. My mother scolds me if she catches me here. My father does as well. If he's drunk, he yells, curses, even shoves me out of the shed. None of this deters me. At the age of eight, I squeeze myself around the boiler's round, white body, careful to avoid the grease spots on the ground. The candy dish waits for me back there, a clay plate filled with M&Ms, Tootsie Rolls, and caramel candies. A gray rock with caraway shell for eyes and a mouse sits on the throne of dulces. And next to the plate, a white ceramic cup has been filled with Cuban coffee. So that's from the chapter, The Candy Dish, in the book. And, and it's tied to the title because my father is a practitioner of a, an Afro-Cuban religion, Regla de Ocha or Santeria, which maybe many of your listeners are familiar with. And I grew up sort of initially not being told of the religion. It was something that was very hidden and has been for a certain segment of the Cuban community and many Cuban-Americans who did not practice the religion on the island in exile here in the U.S. began to practice it as a way to connect with their history and so forth. And that was true in my father's case. And that particular chapter in the books talks about sort of coming to an understanding that to begin with, my father had a religious practice because I thought he was completely godless at one point, slowly beginning to understand sort of the different rituals that were happening around me including things like putting a cup of water under your bed as a way to take care of your daughters. Um, and that came actually from my mother, my mother being Colombiana, which many people do not associate with anything having to do with Santeria or other sort of similar practices. But she very much was part of this larger Latino community in New Jersey and very much sought out this help, right, which was something that our working class immigrant community, I think not just in New Jersey, but all over the country, turned to different religious practices for support and help when um, institutions are so hard to navigate in the U.S. And something that's really wonderful, Daisy Hernandez, about the way you tell that story is that it's almost you're discovering it through your eyes as a child, but then later on trying to learn about it in school, which I think is what a lot of us try to do, put the pieces together and better understand the context of, well, wait, okay, I know that there's a lot of whispering in my house and I know that things happened and I know that, you know, we came here for bad reasons and bad things happen here and the years are complicated and the details, so many very important details that have shaped our life path are just very much a mystery. So I really appreciate how your book really tells the story of how we all just try to uncover some of that mystery. So for you, you really tell the story of how you kind of learned about and re gained respect and also gained understanding of your parents' history through studying and also being more compassionate. For you, as a woman who has always pursued working around social justice issues, et cetera, how you kind of married the worlds of connecting with your family that, you know, we all know that even though most of us are doing anti-racist work, there's a lot of racism in America Latina, oh, there's yes. um, colorism, there's a lot of issues around discrimination around indigenous folks and Afro-Latinos. So tell us a little bit about how you have managed to bridge those different worlds within family and compromiso social. Um, you're just reminding me of one time when I was talking with a white friend of mine who didn't know anything about the Latino community. And I was like, blah, blah, blah. My dad's such a racist. You know, she's like, your dad's a racist, but he's Latino. <laughs> I was like, girl, the Cuban-American community is like the most racist community. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, what comes to mind, actually, is I really struggled with 
two things, which which sort of what was I leaving my family behind, you know? And most people, I think, think about leaving their families behind to, as I write in the book, to go work at the New York Times or something along those lines, a world that's really different. But for me, it's absolutely true that going into social activism was, and political activism was also a way of leaving them because in my familia, it was just stay quiet, don't rock the boat, get a nice job, <laughs> hope nothing bad ever happens to you ever, ever, ever. And so here I was, you know, sort of going to protests and engaging as a feminist of color around these issues and being out about my bisexuality as well. These were really things that were very counter to what I had been taught at home. I think two things happened for me, that political activism it was very much a part of the reason that I was able to actually return home with a lot of compassion. I think that's also true for a lot of other people. I know that my uh, really good friend Bushra Rahman and I put together a book called Colonize This now many years ago. But one of the things that we learned through that book that I've learned through the years since is that that is such a true story for so many women of color and for men of color as well, is that our political activism can a lot of times bring us back home in a different way and help us to appreciate our family. So I'm always like trying to tell my mother, like, it's really good for you that <laughs> that I got, that I became politicized as a young adult. And the other thing, too, is that I struggled with my parents only read in Spanish. They haven't read this book. And I always wonder, sort of, am I leaving them behind? I do this in a way because of them. Right? I don't feel a book is for them, but it's because of them. And I had a chance here a couple of years ago to talk with a college audience at Berkeley, uh, young students of color who were just coming into into college. And as I was talking to them about my parents and and I was reading to them from my work in progress at that point, I realized, wow, you know, my my parents will never necessarily leave their own community in a literal way. But through the writing, I'm always bringing them to other people, and I'm always bringing that larger community to other people. And it really, the process of writing this book really helped me to I don't just have a deeper appreciation for the work that we do as writers and as artists, the way that we are translating in a way, right, translating our communities and our experiences to a much wider audience and affirming them, I think, and in, in through that work. That's the voice of Daisy Hernandez. We're talking about A Cup of Water Under My Bed. It's a memoir, but it really is just recounting your coming of age and your story as a young person. It's a very universal tale. Daisy, you're an editor for Color Lines. You've done writing, you know, a large scale on a lot of different issues. An issue that you've really tackled is the issue of homophobia and really trying to address issues in the queer community. You decided to make that a really central part of your coming of age as well. So tell us, how did you decide to tell that story? You know, I think a large part of it was actually due to my mother and to the other women in my family. Not all of them, but many of them. <laughs> and I was raised by my parents and three aunties, and they're very sort of um, opinionated, lively characters, I think, in the book. And I, I remember one time when I was in the process of writing some of these chapters, there was another Latina who said to me, oh, well, you know, Daisy, why do you, like, what makes you okay with being out about it? I mean, you're bisexual. Like, all of us have been with a woman. <laughs> it's like, oh, okay, that's interesting information about you. <laughs> um, not all Latinas have been with another woman. But um, but I thought about it. It was a wonderful question because she wasn't the first Latina I had met who sort of identified in some way as bisexual boys and out about it. And I realized, you know, I did grow up feeling a lot of confidence in my mother's love for me and in, 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 in sort of one of my aunties who sort of like I'm very close to, it was never really an idea that I would lose that relationship. And so I felt like I could come out. And I, as I write in the book, I mean, coming out to oneself in the 90s when there's actually like an LGBT community and where there's other queer women of color, I mean, we're so, so incredibly blessed. Like a lot of roads have been paved for us that definitely don't make it super easy necessarily, but make it easier than in the past. And I think for me, writing was also a way to 
investigate a lot of questions that I had about sexuality and about the sort of, you know, you don't get a rule book from your mommy <laughs> about dating women. Even in a larger sense, we don't have a lot of rule books about bisexuality specifically. Sort of, you know, in some ways, I think sometimes, you know, might have been easier for them if I was just like, I'm a lesbian, that's it. <laughs> um, but sort of this idea, you know, so when I've dated men, they're like hopeful again, <laughs> you know. So I think it's sort of, there's still a lot of misunderstandings about bisexuality. So I felt like that was important for me to address in the book. So, Daisy, you are going to be reading here in the Bay Area. You're no longer based in the Bay Area, though you were here while you were editor of Color Lines magazine. So you're here visiting for a short amount of time. You have a couple readings. Why don't you tell our listeners about your readings? And also, if you don't mind, share another passage from your book. Absolutely. I'm going to be at the Booksmith on Haight Street Tuesday, today, <laughs> Tuesday at 730. And I'm going to be at, in Corte Madeira at Book Passages Wednesday night at 7 o'clock p.m. And there's information on my website, which is daisyhernandez.com. And if anyone is in L.A. or has friends in Los Angeles, I'll be reading in West Hollywood on Saturday at 4 o'clock at the Book Soup. Um, really excited to get down to L.A. You know, I think because we talked about language, it would be fun to maybe read that um, first day of kindergarten. <laughs> so, so this is from the first chapter called um, Before Love Memory. They come for me in a station wagon. My mother already has me dressed in a navy blue plaid jumper and a white blouse. She has yanked my dark hair into pigtails and now makes the sign of the cross on my forehead before turning me over to a skinny lady who ushers me into the back seat of the station wagon. I join a small group of children, mostly Cuban, all of us dressed alike our eyes bright and nervous. The station wagon lady drops us off at the steps of a gloomy castle in Union City, New Jersey. Holy Family Catholic School. The yard is hemmed in with black iron bars, and the front doors are made of steel. Women in dress pants roam the cement grounds like fat hens with their wings clipped, their beaks pointing and gesturing. I huddle with the other children in packs of three and five like scared chicks. Miss Reynolds is the kindergarten teacher. She has glasses that make her eyes look like oversized buttons on her face, and she speaks the funny language that comes out of the television set at home when we are not watching telenovelas or the noticias, which is to say that she talks like the cartoon character Mighty Mouse. It is English, a language that sounds like marbles in the mouth. It is fun to hear, but mostly because the mouse on the TV screen is flying. Sitting in the classroom, I wait for Miss Reynolds to start talking like my mother, in Spanish. Surely it won't be long now. An hour passes, two hours, an entire day it feels, and still it is all Mighty Mouse. I am familiar with the language. I even speak a few words of it, but I have never heard so much of it all at once. It's like being forced to watch the same cartoon all day long. That's the voice of Daisy Hernandez. She is reading from her book, A Cup of Water Under My Bed. And that's the story of entering the school and entering the English world, which I think a lot of us remember. And I remember practicing English, blah, 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 in the mirror for hours. And appreciate how in your book, you talk about how it's how you remember it, but you're not exactly sure if that's exactly what happened, because oftentimes things can be a little distorted. How'd you feel about that as you were writing as a whole? You know, this idea of the memories that shift and change and evolve and the ones that really stay very present. Absolutely. It's always so shocking when I think the, the next passage right after that is sort of that I go back to look at pictures of my kindergarten teacher. I'm like, she didn't look that way. I swear, <laughs> you know, she's like this androgynous white woman, but I remember her as this, you know, big hen and sort of overpowering. <laughs> so I feel like I learned a lot about memory and distortion and invention <laughs> during the process of it. 
I'm always a little nervous, like, oh, is there something I didn't fact check? But I think I did everything. I have documentation. You know, I think it's funny because I think people, when they don't write memoir, think, oh, you just sit down and it's this very leisurely process of recounting my life story. It's like, no, you're digging up information. You're confirming events. You're interviewing other family members. And it's, it's quite a process. It's definitely quite a process. It is a process, but it definitely, you managed to make it feel very easy because it's a very easy read. And there are a lot of passages that I think really will resonate with with readers that have had the experience of trying to live within different worlds and making peace with their parents that maybe, you know, have, have different worldviews, et cetera. So tell our listeners again where they can see you speak. Absolutely. I will be book passages in Corte Madeira on Wednesday at 7 o'clock. And Saturday in Los Angeles at the Book Soup in West Hollywood. I've never been to the Book Soup, so I'm very excited. And there's other readings in, um, I'm going to be reading Minneapolis and Miami and New York City. And all of that information is on my website at www.daisyhernandez.com. So what else can people find on that website? They can find a link to some new work that I'm doing, which is some research into Chagas disease, also sort of often known as the kissing bug disease, which is a, a tropical disease in Latin America. And there's about 300,000 people in the U.S. The, the CDC estimates have Chagas disease. It leads to uh, fatal heart failure. There's, a, there's one clinic in the whole United States that treats patients. And so I've been writing about the way that the disease itself, the intersections of that and immigrants here who often don't even know that they have it, who are, ha- are undocumented and can't get necessarily the care that they need. It's not curable. So there's a lot, of, a lot of challenges around getting care for it. And I wrote a piece about Northern Virginia, which some people feel is a kind of ground zero. It's the first place where we had a case of a mother passing the disease in the U.S. onto her child. It's an important thing to know about because the more we can educate American doctors, actually, doctors in the U.S. to be looking for it, the more we can get treatment to people. And so they can find that on my website. And I'm also teaching this year at the University of North Carolina in Chapel Hill. So folks can also hear a little bit more about that on there. And the audio version of my book should be coming out this week, too, on audible.com. So they can get information there, of course, or you can always go to audible.com and look for it there. That's the voice of Daisy Hernandez. We've been really lucky to have her here in studio with us. She's been talking to us about her memoir, A Cup of Water Under My Bed. And people have an opportunity to hear her read and also engage in some really interesting Q&A and conversation here in the Bay Area today and tomorrow. But we really recommend that people connect to her and stay up on her work. Muchísimas gracias, Daisy. Gracias. Pasión, odio y 
récord de un extremo a otro fuego pasión te estaba corriendo loca loca me estaba volviendo loco loco un día deseé no tenerte ahora me arrepiento de perderte en la historia de un amor 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 mi vida sin ti tú has llorado y reído conmigo y esto no se acaba aquí te daría, pa' llenar tu vida de alegría, una niña sería y tus ojos tendría, deseo con mi alma que eso pase algún día, no te escucho y soy un cabrón, tengo infierno en mi cabeza que pago contigo, no valoré tu paciencia lo suficiente y por eso ahora te perdí, oye morena, reina mía, anoche tuve una pesadilla, soñé que no te tenía, que te fuiste y te te cansaste de mí, me lo advertiste y yo nunca lo aprendí No te escuchaba, no, y pensé que un día se arreglaría Pero no, no, es la historia de un amor 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 Oye morena, tojito grande No concibo mi vida sin ti Tú has llorado y reído conmigo y esto no se acaba aquí That was the song La Historia de un Amor by rapper Hector Guerra off of his album Amor. I'm your host, Vanessa Bohm, and I'm joined on the line by Laura Salazar. She's part of La Peña Cultural Center. She'll be giving us an update on upcoming events at La Peña, and we'll also talk about the latest in the search for justice and accountability around the murder of Chilean singer and songwriter Victor Jara. Thank you, Laura, for speaking with us this evening. Thank you for having me. Well, September is always a special time for La Peña Cultural Center because of its long-standing solidarity with the struggle for democracy in Chile. September, in particular, is a tragic month in Chile's history. 
For our listeners who might not be familiar with the history, particularly September 11th, 1973, can you tell us about the significance of this time period in Chilean history? Sure. Well, I'm a product of an exile, an immigrant who is a Chilean ex-political prisoner as a result of that time. September 11, 1973 marks the coup d'etat in Chile, where the government was overthrown by General Agosto Pinochet, killing, murdering the president at the time, Salvador Allende. And this caused an over-18-year dictatorship under Agosto Pinochet, as well as many people who were tortured, disappeared, imprisoned, and uh, were politically exiled or just exiled. And many folks here in the Bay Area connected with La Peña Cultural Center and just in the greater Bay Area were very involved in that struggle to really see democracy return to Chile. You also have an update on the search for justice of those who killed Chilean singer and songwriter Victor Jara. Can you tell us a little bit about what's taking place right now around that struggle for justice? Well, for those who don't know, Victor Jara was a very well-known folk guitar singer-songwriter of Chile, who was tortured and killed in the stadium of Chile during the coup. And the man responsible, one of the men responsible for that torture and murder, now resides in Florida. And the process of extradition is happening, spearheaded by Victor Jara's widow, Joan Jara. So it seems like the family is still trying to hold accountable those responsible for his death, and there's that connection to the U.S. harboring his killer. Essentially, and that's the the painful irony. This whole spectrum that is identity and Chile and America and the CIA in America was responsible for the death of Salvador Allende and essentially was in cahoots with Agosto Pinochet. So that was Richard Nixon at the time. Well, certainly these are many, many themes that we've heard about, still continue to hear about, and continue to struggle against. And I know La Peña Cultural Center has many events taking place around this time. There's a special panel that you all are going to have. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Certainly. I, as well as who others, there are going to be on a panel on exile and migration this Thursday, 7 p.m., September 11th, at La Peña Cultural Center. And we're going to talk about Chile ayer y hoy. So yesterday and today, Chile and identity and what that means. And we all came here for different reasons and the many layers of identity and uh, generation. So can you give us that information again, the date and time? Sure. The panel on exile and migration will be 7 p.m. Thursday, September 11th, at La Peña Cultural Center. And uh, La Peña Cultural Center is 3105 Shattuck in Berkeley, and that's two blocks from Ashby Bart. And I know uh, La Peña Cultural Center offers wonderful programming around music, arts, and culture. Are there any events that are taking place that you want to tell us about? Sure. One is coming up, Fonda Chilena en La Peña. That's Friday, September 19th, 7 p.m., and it's to commemorate Chilean Independence Day. So there's going to be dancing, music, empanadas, wine. And if our listeners want to get more information about Thursday's panel or about any other upcoming events, where can they get more information? LaPena.org. That's L-A-P-E-N-A dot O-R-G. Well, thank you so much, Laura, for joining us this evening. Thank you, too. It's all that
menos mi tierra, mi casa y mi familia Y toda su alegría Echo de menos su fiesta, mi homie, a mi primo Y también a mi prima Te extraño no te conocí Tu cultura nunca la viví Aún así yo quiero sentir El latido de tu corazón La tierra es la tierra Y la sangre es la sangre song Tierra by rapper Hector Guerra off of his album Amor. This is Nina Serrano for La Raza Chronicles. I have on the phone Tina Leish, bold, innovative, humorous, wonderful filmmaker who has produced the film about Rocky Dalton, Let's Shoot the Night, that's going to be playing at the Mission Cultural Center as part of Cine Mas, the Latino Film Festival, on September 27th. Welcome, Tina, to La Raza Chronicles here at KPFA in Berkeley, California, USA. Hi, Nina. I'm very uh, proud to be on your program tonight. 
from Vienna. Yes, from Vienna, Austria. So how is it that a Viennese filmmaker came to make a film about a Salvadoran poet, Roque Dalton? Oh, I was a part of the solidarity movement we had in the 80s uh, in Europe, which was quite strong with the Salvadorian uh, liberation movement. So in this time in Europe, we were inviting people from El Salvador to tell us about their struggle, and we were collecting money for the FMLN, and that's why I came to live almost one year in the 80s, in late 80s in El Salvador. And in this time, I... Uh, met for the first time the poetry of Dalton. I, I didn't come back to uh, Europe with a book because at this time there were no books of Dalton uh, sold in El Salvador, but it was like on photogra- photocopied booklets that the, his poetry were read by the students, by the liberation movement, and, and also sometimes in the university you find, you find graffitis of his poems in the wall. So that's where, where I met his Poemas clandestinos for the first time, and it was very beautiful because it was such an ironic and, and, and humorous and, and, and satiric point of view on the on the liberation movement and and I loved it from the first moment I read something of him and so it was my attention was drawn on this name Roque Dalton and I in the late 80s in El Salvador asked what happened to him because I heard he has died and then they told me he has been killed by his own comrade but nobody could tell me something uh, why and what was happening really to him and what was the story. So I was always very curious. And then two, 2009, when the, for the first time the FMLN won the election, I decided to finally investigate a little about this poet. And how did your investigations begin? I first got in contact with people I met in in internet. I found investigating internet. I found his son. He had three sons, Rocky Dalton, and one of them, one of his sons, the oldest, Rockito, also was uh, killed in, as a guerrilla fighter in El Salvador in the 80s. But the other sons are very active political people. Uh, Juan Jose is making a very good internet newspaper, Contrapunto, and Jorge is a well-known filmmaker in El Salvador. So I contacted them and pr- proposed them to make a documentary about their father, and they agreed. So this was the most important thing, that they said, okay, it's fine, come here and, and we talk about it. And then also I met his widow, Aida Canyas de Dalton, who was living in, in, in Havana, in Cuba, and she also was very openly sharing her memories. Then, then I'm, I contacted you, Nina, because I, I found your poems about uh, Dalton and Internet, and, and so I, I went on to, to make acquaintance with the people who have known him, who have wrote about him, who, who were his, his uh, friends uh, of the uh, Generación Comprometida, of this group of young poets in the 50s and 60s in El Salvador, who really wanted to make a new political poetry and so <laughs> and then how did you get the funding yeah that was quite a big luck that uh, i could convince the austrian uh, film funds to give me money to do this i mean it's it's quite difficult to get uh, money for a film which doesn't have very much to do with austria and which is uh, in spanish and and it is not so so common but there are there was especially one woman in the in the ministry for culture who liked this idea very much, and she was um, helping very much to get the 
fi film fundings to do the travels to El Salvador and to Cuba and to make this film. So this film takes place in Europe. It follows Roque's life. So it was El Salvador, Mexico. Havana. Uh, where else? Most of the thing I made in El Salvador because he was born here, there, and he died there. But then he spent a lot of his his life in exile. So I think the most important place was Havana, where he really wrote more, the most important works. And, and and where we met also, Nina, yes. in, in Havana, and where you have known him. And, where um, you interviewed me. Yeah, and, and, and where we were going to the school um, of uh, the theater students. Yes, the yes. National School of Art in the theater department. Yeah, to make a, a state of, of a work you wrote together with Dalton. And this was maybe the most important Cuba, but then also Roque, when he first left El Salvador, he went to Mexico, he studied anthropology in some of his best friends lived there, so I went to Mexico. I was in Nicaragua to meet Ernesto Cardenal, which uh, po poet colleague and friend of Dalton, and also Henry Ruiz, one of the nine commandantes of the FSLN, of the Sandinista Liberation Movement, because uh, Henry had also been a a friend of Roque Dalton, they had also met in, in Havana in Cuba and made uh, acquaintance. And then we, the very, very beautiful experience was to travel with Jorge, with Roque Dalton's son, to Prague, because in the 60s, from 64 to 68, the Dalton family lived in Prague, exiled in Prague, and Jorge was a little boy at time, but he has an impressive memory, and he went with me to look for the house where the Daltons lived in Prague, and to show me some places he remembered where the family he had been over where even his father had wrote his book about Miguel Marmor. He, t he showed me the place where they were always sitting in the park. His father and Miguel Marmor and Rocky Dalton was writing this tremendous book about Miguel Marmor, a Salvadorian revolutionary. It was a very fine experience. And yeah, and we also met some old Latin Americans, excited Latin American, Rafael Moreno from Chile, who had known Dalton in the 60s when they lived there. What was most remarkable to me when I saw the finished film is how you were able to translate the humor of Roque Dalton into the film itself, the elements of humor that were so full of insight and your way of presenting his poetry that made it come so alive and be so accessible to everyone. I found that really remarkable. Thank you very much. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, our idea was to repeat some of the the structures because I mean, uh, there's a there's very few footage, uh, film footage with Dalton. There's just one film for the Cuban television where they made an interview, and what he says in this interview, I think, is crucial for his whole poetry. That he says he doesn't, that he and his friends from his generation, they don't want to make this poetry of hymns and this poetry of of uh, very solemn and very uh, very pathetic revolutionary poetry to singing to the people, but he wants to make a, a poetry of ideas, which is really uh, using filmic techniques of, of montage and of uh, putting together like literary found footage in order to express ideas and to raise political consciousness. And I think that's really crucial because it sounds as if it was not romantic or not beautiful, but he wrote very beautiful love poems, but still not this sort of pathetic thing. It always has some very, very strange 
his touch and very fresh and very, how can you say, poetic and not in a romantic sense. And and we tried to, to use some of the the methods of the montage, for example, to, to put this on stage, this poetry. And I think that was impressing to me also that I traveled all this time. Oh, I worked on this in fact for years and when I was traveling in the South, I always had these four, three, three books of Darton's collected poems with me and we asked people on the streets just to read us one of his poems and, and to comment on it. And it was impressing how much they work today. I, I went in Vienna with a German production on the street and asked people to read me something and people start to cry or start to laugh and they really like it. So, so these political ideas uh, in a lot of his poems are very actual and very necessary to people. That you understand it immediately that this is something with, which you need to understand the world today. I, I thought it is like that, but we could really prove that his poems say a lot to people and to everybody on the street, to normal people, and not only in El Salvador and not only in Spanish-speaking countries. So this was, for me, a very fine experience. Well, what is also interesting in the film is how you translated his techniques that you just described into filmic technique by the use, for instance, of animation, which brings a certain liveliness and humor into the film, which really reflects for me, Roque Dalton, his intelligence, but most of all, his love of life and humor. The film is going to be shown on September 27th at the Mission Cultural Center, and I'm going to be, I'm in the film, and I'm going to be speaking afterwards in a question and answer moment, and I'm going to be interviewed by Alejandro Murguia, who's our current San Francisco Poet Laureate, and he and I are also both co-founders of the Mission Cultural Center, so there were links upon links upon this showing for me that make it so exciting. And the idea that it's going to be subtitled in three languages, I think that is very telling and very much what Roque Dalton and his poetry were about, which is embracing everyone, internationalism. That is what he really stood for. We showed the film, for example, in Turkey, and it was really interesting because it's far away from... <laughs> from Latin America, but you have uh, also this history of left-wing uh, movements, of strong movements, and, and the history of the Kurdish liberation movement, and a lot of things that happen in the film that people understand it immediately. So you really, I really think that that I'm I'm very happy to contribute a, a, a little that uh, Rocky Dalton maybe will be because he's very well known, you know, in, this, in, in Latin America, I think uh, most of intellectuals have heard about him, at least the people of Europe, of my generation, maybe not so much the young ones. But in Europe, he's not, he doesn't have the, the recognition he really should have. So that's maybe something I, I'm a bit proud of to contribute a little, that people at the end will read his, his works uh, more than... It has been before this film. Tina, as a woman filmmaker, how has this process been for you? Yeah, I'm, I must confess that I just started because uh, I don't know where this idea it came from. You know, ideas. You, you're a poet. You know the ideas. They, you don't make them. They come to you. And 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 as an artist, you have you don't know where it comes from. What what you do at the end, sometimes. So I didn't know where it came from, but I had in this time of working as a feminist, sometimes the idea in how can I work four years of my life to make a homage to a man like this. And But I think at the end, 
it is I like uh, men and I like <laughs> I like revolutionary men and I I think that the film has some little moments that show that where you can feel it is made by a woman that a man maybe would have made different differently. I also think that I really like very much Darton's approach to women. I mean, I like very much what you can see out of his poetry. He was apparently a man who loved women, and he wrote very, very beautiful poetry and love poetry. When I started, some people told me, but you know, he was Mujeriego, somebody who's running after the woman. But apparently he was uh, not Mujeriego in this uh, Don Juanism sense running after women and letting them behind, but he really was uh, in love with more than one woman, but really deeply in love and appreciating the women he he loved. And I like this. <laughs> well, you did a wonderful, wonderful job with this, and I think people are going to really enjoy it here in the San Francisco Bay Area, where Roque Dalton's memory is very revered. We have a very large Salvadoran community, and we have a large body of poetry lovers, and we have a lot of revolutionary-minded people, and also people with good humor, because that is the most wonderful thing about the film. On the subject of feminism, I thought the way that you handled the question of prostitution, especially brilliant, very Brechtian, where you took, well, I don't want to give it away, but you kind of made a little mini film inside his poem with Salvadoran sex workers speaking for themselves today. That was a very, very innovative moment. What films are you working on now? I'm doing just two films at this moment. I'm um, making one film about Kurdish political exiled uh, people also who had been fighting in Turkey uh, for the Kurdish liberation movement and are exiled in Europe. And um, I'm making a portrait of some of them. It's everything you know. What is happening now, also in Syria, it's very, it's a, it's a film. I'm, I'm always running behind the histories of, um, because very actual problems now. And the other is a feminist film about young boys in Vienna. Uh, I'm just portraying a couple of young boys uh, from very different families: which one poor, one Muslim, one Jewish, one Christian, one uh, from Turkish parents uh, and and. So, and the, all these boys, these different boys, just tell me which sort of men they want to become. So it's, it's, it's a bit about possibilities to be a man. So it's a feminist analysis of, of, of manhood or forms of becoming a man. And this is almost finished. Oh, I look forward to seeing that. I think that you are a filmmaker on the rise that people are going to be looking out for for many years to come, making more bold and innovative films. So thank you so much for this interview. It's always a pleasure to talk to you. And Thank you, Nina, for, for interviewing me and, and, and for being part of the film. It was so exciting to meet you in Havana and to, that you shared your experiences with me and all this thing we did. And I must say that later on, you know, this is my famous 80 minutes about a life like Roque Dalton. And later on, we will publish on the website some more parts. So that we will, uh, next year, maybe we will, people will see what we did in this, uh, in this school in Havana on, on our website.
Oh, I would just love that. That was one of the most exciting moments of my life, I think, beyond actually writing the play with Roque that we put on on Cuban TV, mm -hmm. was to come back with you so many decades later and go to the National School of Art and work with those wonderfully talented young Cuban actors, re reenacting the scenes from our play uh, in a way that was never even done as well originally. It, it was thrilling. It was thrilling. And your participation gave it a certain edge and a certain excitement. And I think that's what people are going to find in the Roque Dalton film. Thank you. Did you say this was the 31st film festival that the film will be shown in? Yeah, I mean, we got now new invitation, and now we have 32 invitations to International Film Festival. It'll be in September in Oaxaca, in a very nice festival in Mexico. It is invited to Uganda, now to Africa, and and it's really making, making this uh, travel around the world, yeah. As both your work and Roque Dalton's work deserves. Muchas gracias for this conversation. Thank you so much, Tina Leisch in thank Austria. Bye, Nina, and thank you very much to you. Todo está como siempre, solo el cielo que gira y ya, nada quiere pasarme. was the song Calendario by Mexican singer-songwriter David Aguilar off of his album Estelar. You've been listening to La Raza Chronicles Crónicas de la Raza. If you'd like to listen or download tonight's program or any of our past shows, you can go to soundcloud.com slash Chronicles. Stay tuned next week for more news, arts, and culture from America Latina y el mundo latino. Hasta la próxima. Buenas noches.